you know, when we see something like that, it actually um, seems like that type of way that God deals with us, that he wants us just to bring our stuff to him, that he meets us where we are, that we have that Romans 5.8 reminder that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. When we, when we hear things like that, when we see stuff like this, it almost seems like it's too good to be true, doesn't it? It, it almost seems like that, that that really can't be all there is to it, that that's, that's actually too good to be true. And so whenever you run into something in life, and it seems too good to be true, don't you tend to complicate it? I mean, I do. Sometimes things seem to work out, and it's like, wow, this, is, this has to be, this, this can't be going on, this can't be real. And so I want to take that thing that's actually sometimes pretty simple, or maybe that blessing that somebody wanted to give to me, or maybe something that somebody wanted to do, or something that happened that just turned out in such a way, and, and you tend to want to complicate it sometimes. <clears throat> and anytime something in life seems too good to be true, we, we, we get skeptical about it. Now, good reason, right? Because sometimes things are too good to be true, aren't they? But in the case of, of looking at how God deals with mankind, how God deals with us, what he's done about sin and disobedience and brokenness in this world and how he's met us where we are and provided a way for us to come to know him, it may seem like it's too good to be true, but it's absolutely true. And this idea, honestly, is at the heart, I believe, of what's going on in Acts 15. You know, we've been, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. We've come to Acts 15. Now, I have to confess something to you as we get into this. One of the things that has been a conviction of mine for quite some time, I've, I've been in, in church work since, uh, since I was 16, actually, and I'm 23 now. So it's been quite some time now that I'm, I've been in church work. 47. Now, so I've been doing this uh, for, for quite some time. <clears throat> and one of the things that I noticed over time is many of you would probably look in your areas of expertise or the places where you've spent your life working. You, you notice some trends. You notice some things that may happen over time. And one of the things that I noticed that was happening was this, was this hunger for leadership. And, and you would see people, and I'm sure it's true in other areas as well, but, you know, I've only worked in my areas. So I, what I saw in the church was something that happened that disturbed me a little bit. I saw people in the church longing for leadership so much that they began to look just about anywhere to find leadership principles and leadership ideas and leadership things to come together. And so what happened that I, that I took note of was that we would start looking at if there were people in the world who were successful in their field, that we somehow thought that these were good leaders we just assumed that, well, they have to be a good leader if they're successful in their field. And so what I watched was a troubling trend to me, not the worst thing in the world, but a troubling trend is that people in churches would begin to go, leadership in churches would begin to go look at leadership in other areas based on their idea of what success looked like. And they would go to this person and say, how did you do these things? What are the principles? What are the things that are coming up? in your area, and they would go to them, and then they would start implementing these things in the church. Now, here's the problem. I think that's backwards. And here's the reason I think that's backwards, is because I'm, I am convinced that the greatest leadership book ever written is this one right here. It's the Bible. And I believe that what God does in this is he raises up 
imperfect leader after imperfect leader after imperfect leader for us to look at as an example to demonstrate that God can use anyone to accomplish his purpose and his will at any time. And he begins to work with those imperfect leaders, and it's because of their devotion to God, not because of their leadership skills. And it's because of their heart for the Lord, not because of their ability to learn and to do and implement things that God begins to work and move through these people. And so there was something, like I said, that disturbed me, is there was a trend that was happening that people were just grabbing at leadership things instead of digging deeper. Now, again, that's a sweeping thing that pastors say, and I'm not up here hammering against these type of things. If you look in my office, there's four bookshelves. You know, one of them's all commentaries and things. One of them's all my seminary stuff. One of them's all the free books everybody's ever given me. (laughs) But there's one that's, it's nothing but leadership books. So if you're wondering if I've read them, I have. I mean, all the business leadership books and stuff, and there's great principles in here. But one of the things that I've learned about those principles is what's funny is when you know God's word well enough, you find these people who discover a leadership principle, and they start touting it to everybody, and you go, yeah, the Bible said that about a 1,000 years ago. The Bible said that hundreds of years. You know, they, they told us these things way back then, and if you would look at what God's word says and follow it that way, the leadership principle that you've actually written a book now, about you've just taken God out of it and you're using the same principle. So that being said, when I look at God's word, I actually see some incredible leadership principles that are in here. And honestly, I think Acts 15 is a chapter that's laden with things about leadership. That's why last week, if you were here, what we talked about at first, you look at the first part of Acts 15 and what it was is you had this debate that was going on in the church. How are we supposed to come How are we supposed to live out our faith in Christ? And so this is what they were debating. People had shown up to the church and they said, yes, now that you've come to faith in Christ, now you have to do all the things that that Jews used to do to be Jewish. You have to actually become Jewish to become Christian as well. And so this caused a debate on all these things that had to happen in a church. And so the leaders of the church, this is what they did. They sent Paul and Barnabas at the time back to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem council, the leadership of the church, and they said, we've got this issue, and we need you to figure it out. And what we talked about last week was what it means for us to understand that God is a God of order, that God is a God of structure, and God has put things together in such a way where we are not necessarily at the top of the heap all the time. We, we live in a culture that likes to promote that our individual opinions and preferences should be what drive us the most, but it's absolutely not true. Every one of us is valuable in God's eyes. Every one of us as a person, as a human being, is equal at the foot of the cross. Every one of us is wonderfully and fearfully made, but we're all gifted and talented and experienced differently, and we've all been given different things to do, and so there are times that God gives authority structures that we're supposed to follow, and that's what we looked at last week. We looked at this idea. The illustration that I gave was like this. It would be like me walking into Lockheed and and going over there and going, I got some opinions about how you're supposed to build these airplanes, and they're supposed to take me seriously, though I've spent exactly zero time understanding anything that they're doing, but because I maybe read a news article on it, or maybe, you know, I saw an airplane fly over and I went, you know what, I got an opinion on that. And, and, but that's how we kind of interact in this world. We think that because we've come up with an opinion, that every, everybody's supposed to value our opinion. Listen, 
we are all equal, but our opinions are not. God has put people in authority over us for his glory and for our good. And we need to learn how to follow that. That's what we talked about last week. This week, I want to ask you this question. How many of you think leadership is a difficult task? Anyone think leadership is a difficult task? Okay, most of you, the rest of you, I've already put you to sleep, and that's okay. Leadership is a difficult task, and yet it's one of these things that we're so quick to be critical about. Think about that. We all acknowledge the fact that when somebody's put in a position of leadership, they have a very tough task. And yet, we're also part of this culture that loves to just be critical of leaders. Critical of leaders. Can I tell you something? That's not biblical. Critiquing leaders, loving leaders, praying for them, speaking truth to them, pulling them aside and saying, hey, I think you're going down a wrong direction. Do it. That, all biblical. Just openly criticizing everybody's opinions because we have a forum or a Twitter account or a Facebook, that's not biblical. And so what we want to look at today is since we looked about what it means to uh, follow well last week, I want you to look this week about how the leaders led well. So you get the situation, the church was in a debate. We understand that now the Gentiles are coming to Christ. There are people who are saying, hey, we've been Jews all our life. We have rules, regulations that we need to follow. These people who are coming to Christ need to follow the same rules and regulations that we did. Other people are saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. We don't know about that because they're not Jews. Should they have to follow the same things? What do we do about that? Serious point of debate. What happens? Paul and Barnabas get sent down. The other people from the other side and the Pharisees are there debating. This is what it says in Acts 15, chapter 6. It says, the apostles and the elders <coughs> gathered together to consider this matter. Let me just stop for a moment. You're here today because of that sentence. You might not think about that, but the way that we are able to live out our faith today, right here, Acts chapter 15, the gospel had opened up to the Gentiles about 10 years earlier, and now they're figuring out what it means for Gentiles to follow the Lord. This is you and me, right here, Acts 15, that they're debating about. How do people like you and me, how are we supposed to follow the Lord? The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you're aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we're, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. The whole assembly became silent. And listen to Barnabas and Paul describe all the, thing, all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James, James the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church, or one of the leaders in the church at this time, responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter, if you're not familiar, who had just spoken, Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. And he quotes scripture saying, 
After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Now, we're going to stop right there kind of mid-sentence on James because we're going to pick up the rest of this next week because what I want us to focus on today is not necessarily what the decision was made, but, but I want you to see the parts of this that are all around this today. So here's one of the things I just want to start off with, and I want you to understand, Paul and Barnabas at this point in time, we sit here today, and if, if you have if you read your Bible, maybe you've been around church a little bit, or maybe familiarized yourself with, this, with, with the Bible a little bit, you, you're perhaps familiar with Paul. And who Paul is. And when you look at the New Testament and you see all these letters written to churches at the end of, or in the New Testament. And Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, all these things like this. You may be aware that these letters were written by Paul. And you may be aware that, you know, in Christian circles, man, Paul's kind of held up there as a, wow, this is a pretty strong leader in the Christian church. Someone who we look at and revere. In Acts 15, who is Paul? Paul is one of the, if you will, lay leaders sent from the church to go to the authorities in Jerusalem to find out what, what we need to do about this situation, about how Gentiles are supposed to live out their faith. What do we know about Paul before this? See, here's one of the issues about sometimes when you read the book of Acts and you're able to flip through this. Acts 15, we're about 10 or 15 years after Paul came to know Christ on the road to Damascus. We're about 10 years after Peter had this vision of a sheet being laid down and him going to the house of Cornelius. Even though it's just a few pages for us, it's 10 years. And so we miss sometimes in reading this 10 years of growth, 10 years of what God is doing, 10 years of leadership development, 10 years of hitting your head against the wall, 10 years of people coming alongside. When you look at Barnabas, Barnabas first shows up because this guy named Paul, who used to persecute Christians, has now come to Jesus. And so Barnabas steps out and says, I'm going to mentor Paul. I'm going to mentor this man named Paul. And we see Barnabas, who you've got the church leaders, you've got Barnabas, who's here as, as helper. And he takes Paul, who's down here in the leadership structure. You get this? Where do we think of Paul? We think of Paul up here. But when we see Paul here, he's here. And Barnabas is helping him out. And then when he comes here, you kind of got, well, there's Barnabas and Paul who are talking. After this, what we're going to get into is Barnabas and Paul are set out as equals. And then Barnabas and Paul disagree about some things. We'll talk about that later. And they separate. And it's after that that Paul develops and becomes the leader that we know him today. We look at leadership. We know it's a hard task. We look at the job that somebody else has or the position that somebody else has, and let's just be honest, we covet that sometimes. We look at it and say, I could do a better job in that. What we miss sometimes are the decades of work that it took the people to get there. And we tend to sit here and think that I can do this. So I just want to tell you this. I'm not sure any person's leadership skills ever grow larger than their followership skills. Crickets. Man, I wish they would. We have crickets all over the place this morning. I wish they would actually started going like that this morning. That would have been awesome. I want you to let that sink in. 
I'm not sure our leadership skills ever grow beyond our followership skills. It's why last week I wanted to point out that there was an authority that was in place, that they submitted to the authority. And you know, anytime you submit to the authority and the leadership, there's probably instances where we disagree with them, probably things where we think I could have done it a different way or I could have done it a better way. But what we see is that they're bringing this debate to the church. You have to learn before you can lead. You know, too many people are trying to be leaders before they've learned how to follow in today's world. That's that byproduct of saying everybody's opinion is equal, and I love you enough to say it's not. There are some of you who are more skilled in things than I am. You know, I see Coach Merritt back here. He knows more about football than I ever will. You know, I may have some opinions. Why'd they run that play? But he's in there doing this stuff every day. I see Pat Sneed. He's an accountant. I don't know math at all. You know, I married an accountant. That's how bad I am at math. I'm like, that's what I need. I just need to find an accountant married. So that's what it was, you know. I, I, I see all kinds of skills out here in the audience, and I just go, you know what? I don't have the same gifts and abilities, and for me to think that I'm in a place where my opinion is going to be greater than others, it's not a realistic place for us to be. We have to learn to follow before we can lead. <clears throat> and like I said, sometimes we miss the fact that there's a decade or more of growth. That's why Peter says in here, you know that in the beginning or you know that early on. Peter's referring to something that happened a decade ago. But there's a leadership principle at work here. You have to do the work where you are to get where you want to be. And this is the same thing with personal growth in Christ. We may look at other people and say, man, that person's an awesome believer. They're a strong follower of God. They're, they're someone who has some, some maturity and some faith and some things that I wish I had. And we just think, maybe there's a Bible study I can go to and learn that. Well, probably it's just going to take... A lot of consistency and a lot of time for those things to grow. You can't just fast forward in life where you want to be. The journey where you want to be is all oftentimes filled with detours and obstacles and challenges. And to navigate it well, you have to ask yourself this question, whose authority am I submitting to to lead me through this? So what they're doing right here in Acts chapter 15 is they're listening to everybody. They're praying, they're coming together, and they are seeking God's face on this. Why? Because this is true. My salvation is a serious matter. That's your blank in there. My salvation is a serious matter. I love the fact that what we see here in Acts 15 is that they took seriously the fact that people are coming to Christ and we need to help them figure out how do they live this faith out? What does it mean that they come to Christ? Because it really seems a little too good to be true that I can have all this stuff that's happening in my life. I can have all these ways that I've rebelled against God. I can have ignored him for 30 or 40 years of my life, but yet I can come to this moment and say, God, I, I love you and I admit that I'm a sinner and, and I pray that you would come into my heart and life and, and I want to follow you. And, and God immediately forgives us. He immediately wipes the slate clean. He makes us a new creation. That seems too good to be true, but it's true. And that's what they all know at this point in time. But then the question becomes, okay, well, then now what? How do we live this out? So you can understand. You really can sympathize and understand that some people said, well, the best thing that they need to do is follow this list of 600-something rules that we follow as Jews. And they, they need to do that because they know it. It's comfortable. They see how it works. And let's just make them do these type of things. But that's not what's going on. This is a massive, massive issue. The future of all Christ followers is being 
talked about at this point in time. And the decision made in this council, as I already said, it impacts you and me today. It has shaped how we follow Jesus and how we live out our faith. So look at how they handled the issue. I just want to point a few things out. Acts 15.6, the apostles and elders gathered together to consider this matter. They came together again. We see this trend all through the book of Acts, the importance of gathering together. Paul and Barnabas traveled 250 miles, which for us is a little jaunt in the car today, right? It may be a long day of driving, but we don't think. They traveled 250 miles to come and sit together with the church leaders to go, hey, this is a serious thing. How do we, how do we figure this out? So they came together. They listened they prayed, they debated, they didn't get in a hurry. I love it. It says, after there had been much debate, then Peter stood up. And we get Peter's response, and we get Paul and Barnabas's response, and we get James's response, ultimately because that points us to the direction of where the decision was made. And Luke didn't take the time to write down, here's what John said, and here's what Paul said, and here's what Peter. He, he didn't give us that detail. He's just trying to tell the story, say, there was a lot of debate about this. There was a lot going on, and here's what kind of summed it all up and ended it. And Peter told the story about what God had given him in a vision. And I love the thing that, that Peter said right here. When, when you look, he says in, in verse 17, look at the way that, I mean, I'm sorry, in verse 11, look at the way that he says this. Now, you know Peter, right? I'm, I'm Peter, ready, fire, aim, Peter. Brash kind of Peter, kind of out there all the way, Peter. The Peter who struggled with going to the house of the Gentile, Cornelius, is saying these things. Look at the way he words his response. Verse 11, on the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. Well, what are you pointing out there, Pastor? He didn't say, I believe that they're saved like we are. He said, I believe that we're saved like they are. What's the difference in that statement as a leader? That's someone who's inclusive. That's someone who's looking to love on someone. That's not someone who's looking to puff themselves up and distance themselves. Well, they're saved like we are. No, he's saying that, hey, I'm, I'm saved just like he is. So there's a little bit of things that are going on with Peter if you, if you see that. And so the question that they're all debating here, the question is, what must I do to be saved? And they talk about the fact that it is grace through faith. It is grace alone that saves. Peter says, God didn't pour out the things on the Gentiles because they had followed all the Jewish rules. He poured the things out on the Gentiles by his grace, which is the same way that he pours it out to us. And so this is what they're debating with. If they're sitting here looking and saying, here's what's happened. As a good Jew, I've done everything that I can to follow Christ according to the law, the best way that I understand and I know how. And, and that's the way that I'm trying to grow close to God, and, and in doing that, we saw that, again, in Acts chapter 1, that they prayed, and then later on, God poured out the Holy Spirit on them, and we saw this, and what Peter says is, I know everything that we went through, and yet when I went to the house of the Gentiles, I'm mid-sentence preaching, and God just pours out the Holy Spirit on them, the same way that he poured out the Holy Spirit on us as Jews, and so what Peter's making the argument here is, we have to understand that if God did that for them, then it seems like the things that we did, though they are important to our faith, important to our growth, they're not necessarily the key thing about what it means to be saved. It means that being saved is by the grace of God alone. 
It's not about that you can earn it. It's not about that you can do things to manipulate God to think that way. It's that just simply by grace alone. And so now they're figuring out, okay, well, then what do we do with this? And this is what I love. Think about this. This is not a trick question. The Jewish council is made up of Jews, right? So what, how do you think that they followed Christ? What did they understand about what it looked like to follow Christ? A Jewish model, right? They knew the law. They knew, that's honestly all that they knew. Can I just confess something? I've been a Baptist since I was born. I'm only, I've visited other churches, but I'm not really familiar with People ask me what other people believe all the time. You know what I tell them? Go ask them. Because I know what I believe, but I'm not an expert on what other people or what other faiths and religions believe. I, and, here, and here's the truth of it. I know what the books tell me they believe, which is not necessarily all the time what they actually do and believe. So sometimes I, I just invite people, well, go have a conversation with them. The point I'm trying to make here is we've all grown up in a way where we go, I'm comfortable with living my faith out with Christ this way. And that's exactly where this council was. So I want you to look at the decision because they were leading. And a leader has to head to new places. Think about that. A leader has to do new things. A leader means that we're doing things and we're heading in a direction where nobody else is gone. I'm going here first. I'm leading. So they can. A manager manages the status quo, right? A manager, somebody else has established something and you're here to manage this. No, they're leading at this point in time. A leader is willing to do things the right way, even if it means doing them differently than the way that they've done before. So here's what the Jewish council did. The Jerusalem council led the church in a new direction by letting go of the old way of doing things and the old ideas and allowing a new way of thinking. Now, careful, they did not dismiss and say these things were wrong or these things are obsolete. They just said, you know what, there's probably more than one way for us to live out our faith. There's only one way to come to Christ, but there's multiple ways for us to live out our faith. And so this is where they're going. Now, I dare say that that is a much more difficult path forward. Don't you think it would have been easier to go, yes, you're right. Everybody just needs to do the same things that we've already done. We understand this formula. We just need to teach them this formula. We're going to do it this way, and everybody will be happy. Amen? Amen. Do you realize they made a decision saying, we're going to allow them to live out their faith in a Gentile way? And probably somebody went, excuse me, Mr. Leader, yes, what's a Gentile way? I have no idea, but we're going to let them do that. Amen, amen, let's go home. I, I, I guarantee you that's a little bit of it. And there are some times that <laughs> it, they have to send people, a leader sometimes has to go down an uncharted, an unknown, or an unfamiliar path, one where they can't tell the people how everything's going to work. I love the fact that what we see here is they didn't look for the easy way. They looked for the right way. They didn't look for the easy way. They looked for the right way. And that's the question for every leader. That's the question for every one of us today. What's the right way to get things done? What's the right way to get things done? Not what's easiest, not what's fastest, not what's cheapest, not what's the least amount of conflict, but what is right according to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It's a question for every one of us as we look about how to live our life. What is the right way? To live my life. Not what's the easiest way to live my life. Not what's the way to live my life where there's never going to be any trouble or conflict. That way doesn't exist, I don't think, anyway. 
Or what's the one that avoids pain and heartache and hard decisions? That way doesn't exist either. But what's the right way to live my life according to the Holy Spirit of God? The short formula for us is this. If God's word says it, then I need to live it. If God's word says it, then I need to live it. And this is what the Jerusalem council was doing. Look at the obvious work of God. And so God is at work. Why are we going to set up rules that would undermine what God is doing? Now, we have the advantage of the completed book, okay? So we have some leadership ability and some skills where we can look to things that happened along the way. But imagine being in a place where they're living this out at this point in time. And they're seriously having to look at God and going, we're going we're gonna to do this path the way that God is leading it. Now, there's some good news that comes out of the Jerusalem Council as well. They confirm what they already knew from 10 years ago, and that is salvation is available to all. <clears throat> God is working, obviously, in the hearts of Gentiles and the people that are outside of the Jews and the people that are outside of doing things the way that we've always done it. And salvation is available to all. And that's where I love Peter's response. On the contrary, we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. We're saved in the same way that they are. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for us to learn to say? When we look at someone and, and maybe there's, there's some question in our mind about whether that person's sane or whether that person lives on the same planet as us or is from the same planet as us or maybe there's some difficulty or some struggles in life, maybe we just need to remind ourselves that the same way that they have salvation is the same way I have salvation. It's grace and grace alone of God. It's by the fact that God's going to pour out his spirit on them the way that he poured his spirit out on me and that I don't deserve it any more than they deserved it. Doesn't that kind of level things there? And that's just what we need to remember. And I love that that's honestly what Peter was saying. Peter was subtly doing this. He was saying, hey, all you Jews that are sitting here in this Jerusalem council who think that you're just a little bit better than these Gentiles, you need to remember something. That God poured out his spirit on them the same way that he poured out his spirit on us. And maybe we need to kind of bring it down a notch and just do what we can do to say, hey, we need to welcome these people into faith. See, I love the way that Peter subtly did that. And if you don't have Jesus in your heart and life, let me tell you, he greatly desires that you know and follow him. You see, this is what we... I feel like that I have not had time to adequately do everything that God's doing in my head today, and I feel like I'm flying through this for you. But what I want to pour into this is what you see in Acts 15, like I said, it's how we live our faith out today. It's people who love the Lord who came together to debate seriously, okay, we have people who are coming to know Christ, and they look different than us, and they act different than us, and, and they have different backgrounds than us, and they don't understand everything. What, what can I give them to help them know what it means to follow Christ? And I think it really all boils down to this. Uh, John 10.10 10 is one of my life verses. It says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come, Jesus talking, I have come so they may have life and have it to the fullest. Which simply said means this. That when we choose to follow our own way or when we choose to follow the things of the world, then it's going to lead to a place of destruction in our life, whether we want it to or not. But when we choose to follow God's way, we're going to experience life at its fullest, life at its best, life in a way that can only be experienced by following Jesus Christ. And so the point of this whole thing is this. 
if you're thinking, wow, this is really too good to be true, you mean that I can come as I am today with all my struggles, all my difficulties, all the things that have gone on in my life, and I can bring those to the Lord. And even though I see people all around this church who've been walking with Christ for forever, and, you know, maybe they've got things together, and I think that maybe God loves them more than he loves me. No, 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 no. We're all saved by grace alone. And, and when we come to that starting point and we say, God, I want to give you my life, then he takes us where we are, and he gives us the opportunity to follow him. Now, salvation is the same for everyone. It's through Jesus Christ alone. But then how do we live that out? You just begin to follow Jesus in your everyday life. Well, what does that look like? You know what? I don't know. <laughs> Can I tell you how I describe? There's a church word we use. It's called discipleship. And discipleship means you know, people who learn how to become a disciple, how to follow Christ. I have always described discipleship as a beautiful mess. It's a beautiful mess. Because the moment that we think that we can formulate a discipleship plan that is the same for everybody is the moment that we've lost our mind. Because the truth is, God knows what's going on in your life at this moment and the next steps that you need to take and to follow him. So here's the deal. Last blank for you is this. I cannot earn my salvation, but I can live it out. I cannot earn my salvation. You don't, you don't do these things. You don't put these things in place in your life because you're trying to earn God's favor. You're simply saying, God, I understand that I'm saved by grace alone, and now I need to know how do I live this out. And you live it out by taking his word and putting it in your heart and living out what he's given you to do. And it's going to look a little bit different for each person in here, though it's also going to look a little bit similar for everybody on that road. And I can't necessarily tell you where it is, but I can tell you this, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and Jesus comes so that you can have life and have it to the fullest. And if you want to experience life to the fullest, then you can give your life to him.